Hey podcast listeners, if you're a little confused about why you just downloaded episode 3.6 after we released episode 7.8, it's because we, the overlords of the paranoid planet, like to mess with your heads so we can better manipulate and gaslight you. But it's also because we package our shows thematically, and this one, it so happens, is an addendum to the series on cults we began in 2021. If you haven't listened to those episodes yet, scroll back back, way back, to when this podcast was still but an infant stuck in COVID lockdown, where you can find vintage interviews with leading journalists and cult experts on Scientology, the Unification Church, the People's Temple in Jonestown, and other deceitful groups and gurus. But since you're already here, I may as well tell you that this episode emerged out of my growing participation in the International Cultic Studies Association, also known as ICSA which defines itself as a global network of people concerned about psychological manipulation and abuse in cultic and other high-control environments. I had the honor of attending their last conference in June 2023, which was held in Louisville, Kentucky, where I delivered an essay on conspiracism and scapegoating. I sang the Paranoid Planet theme song, took a steamboat ride on the Ohio River, made a lot of new friends, including those you will meet in this episode, listened to some great presentations and shared conversations, food, and drink with some pretty awesome people who had an academic interest or a personal experience with cultish communities. And if you think it's a bit strange to be releasing a program on cults during the Christmas holidays, I can assure you the irony is not lost on us. So here is the first part of a two-part voyage back into the cultiverse. Here we go. Ho, ho, ho. In the kingdom of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. In the kingdom of the paranoid, the one-eyed man is a spy. This is Paranoid Planet. I welcome this kind of examination because people have got to know whether or not their president is a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. Esta nunca ha sido dictadura, Esta dicta blanda. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. Our enemies are innovative and resourceful, and so are we. They never stop thinking about new ways to harm our country and our people, and neither do we. I don't like them putting chemicals in the water that turn the friggin' frogs gay. I'm not gonna give you a question. You are fake news. Silent Green is people! Welcome to episode 3.6 of the Paranoid Planet podcast. I am your host, Michel-Jacques Gagné, recording this program from the back pew of a religious gathering that is starting to get a little bit culty and asking myself whether I should respond to that altar call or grab my loved ones and kung fu fight my way out to the door. Speaking of cultish phenomena, with me today is Paul Jensen, a friend I made in June 2023 when I was attending the annual ICSA convention, that's the International Cultic Studies Association, in Louisville, Kentucky, which gave me the desire to create an extra episode to our series on cults. Paul and I were both presenters at the conference, 
and discovered that we share similar life experiences in the evangelical Christian movement, including an interest in identifying the fine line between uplifting religious practice and the twilight zone of cultish weirdness. Paul hails from Woodstock, Vermont. He is a science communications consultant. He regularly leads training workshops for faculty and staff at leading academic institutions, companies, and nonprofits. Paul has been helping clients write op-eds for major media outlets for more than 15 years, publishing articles in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, Chicago Tribune, NBC, Fortune, Forbes, Reuters, The Guardian, and many other outlets. From 2014 to 2020, he served on the executive management team of the Union, the world's oldest global health organization, serving as head of policy and strategy. Prior to that, he served as deputy director of Action.org, a global network of health advocacy organizations supported by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. That means he's clearly part of the shape-shifting lizard Illuminati. <laughs> Paul Jensen, welcome to Paranoid Planet. Hi, Michelle. Nice to see you. How you doing? I'm good. I was going to say, how's the weather in Vermont? But it's probably pretty similar to Montreal, my guess is. It's probably the same thing that you've got right now, yeah. Beautiful. Yes, it actually has been a wonderful month of September. I can't complain. Um, so I've already kind of given a quick bio. Is there anything that you want to correct or add about who you are uh, and where you come from and what you do, I guess? Uh, I think you basically summed it up. That was a lot of the information I had sent to Ixa. So if it's wrong, <laughs> it's, that's on you. My fault. That's yeah. right. Okay. Uh, I will say that I, I did. I lived in. Speaking of the. The, the lizard people. Uh, I did live in Washington, D.C. for 16 years and only recently moved to Vermont, which is where a lot of my work has been done. But uh, so I, I've gone from sort of small city to uh, big country. Okay. And I have to say I'm loving every minute of it. Is it easier to manipulate people's minds in big country? <laughs> I'm trying. We'll see. Yeah. <laughs> or in woke or in woke Washington. In woke Washington. Yeah. Okay, well, tell us a little bit how you got interested in the study of cultish groups and practices. Uh, well, I, I, I grew up in what many people would call a high-demand religion. And I have to tell you, you know, I, I did the, the lecture at the ICSA conference. I recorded a podcast recently with, with Steve Hassan and looked at my church and I'm and, and still sort of coming to grips with the fact that I grew up in what many people would call a cult. You know, it's it's not the sort of organization that you see on television that's, you know, makes the news like Nexium or, you know, Scientology or something like this. But it's a huge organization that when I started researching the history of it, I found that it, it grew out of a network of authoritarian cults. In the late 1800s. And you're referring to the, the Assemblies of God. The Assemblies of God, yeah. Huge, huge organization. Yeah, which I think for many Americans, they might be shocked by what you're saying there, because they would consider that to be sort of a mainstream, at least within kind of the, the more, more conservative brand of Christianity. They might call that more mainstream, like the Southern Baptists or something like that. Totally, totally, yeah. And so that's what, what really got me interested in studying this topic and i don't have this sort of story where i was a really a, tr a true believer and then had a crisis of faith and and then came out of it it wasn't that sort of thing i, I grew up in the assemblies 
and it it never really took hold of me you know when when you're really small and you you really don't have any other context you just assume things are true i remember praying every night before i went to bed i remember thinking about hell at a, a very young age yeah they, they tell us about hell pretty early on yeah yeah right and and thinking about all of the ways that i might end up there uh, not wanting to end up there and understanding how it was just unimaginable torment forever and ever. And the only way to avoid it was uh, by, you know, accepting Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior and, and living a life of, of holiness and repentance and, and this kind of thing. As I got older, so, you know, high school, this sort of thing. Back then, it was it felt sort of like a like a fringy form of, of Christianity. And I don't think that's true anymore, but it, it never really took the, the story. I think I told at ICSA was in the evening service. It was when evening on, on Sunday nights is when the Simpsons came on and there was a TV set in one of the Sunday school rooms. And I would sneak out of the service and go down the hall and watch the Simpsons. You know, I, I, w I was sort of that kind of kid, but I, I didn't really want to rock the boat so much so i never really had these arguments with my parents about i'm not going to church and and this sort of thing i never really had theological debates that i can remember at that age my strategy was just bide my time and when i'm old enough to leave and go to college then that will sort of be the i'll close this this chapter right so uh and i did i, pr I pretty much did that and then almost 20 years went by and I found myself getting really curious about the church that I grew up in. Where did it come from? Uh, who, who started it? You know, the, just sort of these basic questions that I never really remembered being answered when I was growing up. And so I, I went online. I went to the website of the Assemblies of God, and I... They have a, an archives, a historical archives, and you can just go in and buy digital documents. And so I bought thousands and thousands of pages of digital documents and had them sent to my house, you know, on like CD-ROM and this kind of thing, and started looking and, and buying books. They have, they have their in-house, an in-house publisher called Gospel Publishing House, and I started just buying books. And it happened that in 2014, uh, 2014 was the centennial anniversary of the assemblies and so they produced their own official history called people of the spirit and so i bought that book and i i opened it up and in the very beginning it basically goes chronologically and so i made a list of these men who are uh, positioned in the book as the the founding fathers of sorts of the movement you know of the assemblies of god and then there's this broader pentecostal movement and so I started reading about them, what the assemblies said, and, and sort of looked at what they said in various documents, official documents coming out of the headquarters. And, and these people are presented as uh, sort of complex and in some ways flawed, but nevertheless normal people who did extraordinary things through the power of the Holy Spirit. And people, so men with names like Charles Fox Parham, John Alexander Dowie, Frank Weston Sanford, and others. And I then went back and looked at the historical record 
I, this is not in any way an endorsement, but I got a, a subscription to newspapers.com. And it's just a huge, huge archive of digital scans of, of historical newspapers. And it's great because you can see the actual, it's just a scan of the actual physical paper. So you can see where articles fit with respect to other things happening in the news at the time. And you can see that the pictures and the photographs and things, the sketches and whatnot. And what I learned was that these guys ran authoritarian, uh, abusive, and sometimes criminal cults that were scattered throughout the United States. And this is what my, my talk at the ICSA conference was all about what it was like to sort of make these very easily uh, discovered discoveries. I, I referred to it as discovering the worst kept secrets of my high demand church. Frank Sanford in Maine ended up going to federal prison for essentially starving his own followers to death, uh, including at least one teenager that I could find. And he had been uh arrested on a false imprisonment warrant so essentially kidnapping and then they they found out that he had uh starved his followers it happened out at sea he he owned one of the most beautiful racing yachts of the gilded age and had a whole a whole scheme basically to try to catalyze the end of the world by sailing this racing yacht uh along the coast of countries and then claiming those countries for the kingdom of God. And, and he had this idea based on a reading of the book of Matthew that once the, once the message, the gospel message had reached the ends of the earth, then the end would come. And so he thought, well, I've got to, I've got to make this happen. And, and if he were to make it happen, he and his followers in, in this cult, uh, I didn't mention the name, it's, it was called Shiloh, also known as the kingdom. His idea was that they would all reign over Oh, they would reign in the kingdom alongside Jesus Christ. They would, they would have these favored elite positions uh, in the afterlife, in the kingdom. So um, are we talking about like a, a political kind of attempt where they're going to plant crosses or flags on other places? Or, And I've seen this in evangelical groups, and it's fairly innocuous, walking through a neighborhood and praying for that neighborhood, right? Whether it's uh, a mall or the gay village or something where they think you know the gospel needs to be shared, it's kind of like a almost like a spiritual. Um, it's a spiritual conquest, right? Not fighting against humans, but against the powers and principalities, that sort of thing. Is that what they were aiming to do? Similar, yeah. He was basically claiming those territories, and he had set up. You know, he had Shiloh in Maine, but he also had uh, a, a satellite settlement in Liverpool. He had another one in Jerusalem. But his real idea was he would spiritually claim the, these territories that would satisfy the criteria, God's criteria, for sending Jesus Christ back to earth. And I'll read you, in fact, uh, just a short little ditty from his newsletter uh, saying, and this basically describes his mindset, right? So he's saying that the authority of the, the church is seen to be exceeding abundantly above all we ask or think, and all power in acting as representatives of God on earth, and binding and loosing and power to judge those who refuse to receive the gospel, and in the day of judgment, power to sit in judgment of even upon the angels of the devil. 
And then he goes on to say that they would have the authority to rule the nations of the earth with absolute sway during the millennium. So this is, you know, this end time period of a thousand years when Christ comes back and reigns over the earth. And he, he thought that they would actually rule over the entire earth and have absolute authority during that time and have the authority to, to uh, any unbelievers to, to break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Yeah. So, you know, not, not, not innocuous, I would say that kind of mindset, right? I mean, that, that's clearly, clearly a, a, not a, not a clinical psychologist, but that really sounds like a, like a sociopath to me. No, but uh, there's something very familiar to me there because uh, I grew up in the Plymouth Brethren mm -hmm. and there are different types of Plymouth Brethren. There are the open Brethren and the exclusive Brethren, right? Some that are definitely yeah. very cultish and very kind of as their name implies, they don't talk to other people. They don't believe anyone else is going to heaven. And then the open brethren are a little bit more like your Baptists or, or evangelical Methodists, right? They might seem kooky from the outside, but it's not Hotel California. You can come and go as you please, that sort of thing. So what sounds familiar there is this doctrine that I think is also popular in, uh, in uh, Pentecostal or Assemblies of God settings, and that's premillennialism, right? Kind of a literal interpretation of the book of Revelation, waiting for the coming of Jesus, but somehow expecting there's going to be a major war or conflict leading to that. Uh, did you feel that this form of, um, both in your, in your research and in your own experience, this kind of impending end-of-the-world scenario, how big of a role does that play in the day-to-day -day lives of believers? Oh, it's central. Yeah, the, the imminence of Christ's return is part of the cardinal doctrines. Uh, of, of the church that I grew up in, of the assemblies, right? And and what we always heard was, it could happen at any moment. It could happen before this church service is done. No, no man is promised tomorrow. And it was used to create a sense of urgency when giving people the option to, you know, what they would say was to accept Christ, which I think uh, a more critical reading is to... Um, come into the, the church and start to develop a relationship with this organization and this community that becomes, if you go down the path, starts to become a bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger part of your life. And so, yeah, that, that was front, front and center. And that was one of the things that was so scary as a, as a kid, because it could happen at any time. And then it's not just the return of Christ uh, and going to heaven um, of course, there was the whole hell factor, but there were all of these, what I think we would probably agree, were conspiracy theories that are also sort of wrapped up in this whole view of the end times. So there's Armageddon, right? That's going to be a war. It happens somewhere. Um, it happens in a, in a valley called Megiddo. I can't remember exactly where on earth this is supposed to be. Uh, but the idea that it's going to be like World War III, basically, that the blood will be up to the, the horses' bridles. At that time, uh, we would all be forced to accept the mark of the beast. But of course, if we received the mark, and this is like a stamp that, that the government, the world government run yeah. by the Antichrist. The, the United who, Nations for many people. Yeah, yeah, right. That was a thing, right? You know, that the, the future Antichrist is, he's probably already alive and he's probably rising up the ranks of the United Nations. Yeah this sort of thing. Um, and he's going to abolish all religions except for the one 
global government approved world religion. Uh, there will be no money, but we'll, we'll live in a cashless society. So I, re I remember being a five-year-old kid and learning about the black market. You know, what's the black market? Well, that's where we're, we're going to have to get all of our oh, food and okay. our, our everything we need, because in order to buy things at stores, you need to get the stamp, the government stamp, the mark of the beast. But if, if you receive that mark, you can't go to heaven, then you go to hell because you're part of the antichrist system, right? So it's very complex. Um, it's a bit convoluted, a bit fantastical. But when you're a small kid, you know, this is like, wow, this could, this could happen tomorrow. I could wake up in this world tomorrow. And it's pretty terrifying. And like I said at the beginning, you know, as I got older, I, I started to become a bit more skeptical. So I, I, I don't remember really deeply believing these things by the time I was a teenager. But as a young kid, I mean, this becomes sort of something something I thought about going to sleep at night. Yeah. You know, I remember these movies. No, before there was the, um, the Left Behind series. I remember these. Uh, they were pretty low budget, like Billy Graham movies, like somehow somebody lived a life of sin, which usually meant like smoking cigarettes and playing at penny arcades. Yeah. And then at the end yeah. of the movie, they would end up in a stadium by accident. And there Billy Graham was preaching the gospel and the person responded to the altar call. Right. I remember one yeah. of these movies and it, it really scared me because it was like a little girl who came home. She had been playing with her friends or playing outside and no one was in the house. Like, mom, dad, mom, dad. And she thought the rapture had happened and she'd been left oh, behind. Man. And so she's like petrified. And then her mother shows up. It's okay, honey. It hasn't happened yet. So, yeah, I thought that was really creepy. And it does create uh, the sense that um, there's this impending doom over your head, like a sword of Damocles. I remained uh, a, a practicing Christian, but I have to admit there were a number of groups I was like, yeah, I think I'm going to go and see what's happening in another church. And I think I've become a more rationalist in, not in, like, I don't, I won't take pages out of the Bible, but if it doesn't say miracle, I don't assume it's a miracle. You know, I do believe maybe those wise men who visited Jesus, you know, they were astrologers from the East, and they knew something about the alignment of stars that other people didn't, right? You don't necessarily mm -hmm. have to have a miraculous view of that. So I think the problem is not so much that there's this book called Revelation that confounds everybody, is that there's this really literal reading of it with the worst possible case scenario, and it has to be happening like soon, right? I don't know if Hal Lindsey books were popular for you guys, but Hal Lindsey would read the Revelation with one eye on the Bible, one eye on well, it wasn't CNN yet, but like NBC News or the New York Times, and then saying, oh, yeah. look, what's happening in Palestine? Well, that's these grasshoppers, except they're helicopters. They're like Apache, whatever. And of course, yeah. when you're 12 and you're consuming this for fun, because those are the books lying around the house, it can be, it can make you a little bit neurotic. And I think my my interest in conspiracy theories came from that. I was on the Michael Shermer show. Michael used to be an evangelical Christian. He's an atheist now. Uh, but I remember explaining how reading the Revelation made me want to see more about what's hidden behind the news. And it was people like Hal Lindsey who did that. Yeah, and he wrote The, the Late Great Planet Earth. Yeah, Was that Hal right. Lindsey? Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. So anyway, so I guess the literature may have been similar uh, between our two experiences. Uh, in the Plymouth Brethren, apart from this kind of end times prophecy, we also have like very Calvinistic predestination ideas, which I think is different in the mm -hmm. Assemblies of God. For Calvinists, you know, God shows you since the beginning of the world, so rejoice, you're going to heaven. The problem is you never really know if you are one of the ones who are chosen, so that's even more dreadful. It means there's no chance of you going to, I don't know, like um, 
you know, a, a Catholic um, confessional and somehow making things right. You know, they're either always right yeah. or always wrong. And I remember yeah. my dad getting into arguments with his sisters because they all got baptized in the Brethren Church, but none of them started going to church and went to church anymore because they said, yeah, I gave my life to Jesus. So it's almost like I signed the fire insurance. I don't need to worry. And my father's like, but that's not how it works. Um, yeah. And I got that. I think my father eventually actually went, ironically enough, to the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada, which similar, I guess, to the Assemblies of God in the States. So I don't know if he's better off or worse off for making that choice, but he kind of went from that uh, very Calvinistic form of evangelicalism to a more, uh, what do we call it, Wesleyan, you know, a little bit more kind of uh, your works matter type of church? Was there a lot of uh, charity works and an active living that was almost like a requirement to be in the church for you guys? Um, I would say the short answer is no, not not required. You know, the, the church did, I remember being really small and, and my church uh, operating a local food bank. You know, those, those sorts of things are really common. But the message, to contrast it with Calvinism is the invitation is open to everyone and to accept Christ, to be saved. There's a differentiation between the saved and the lost, but the people who are saved are the ones who either make the decision or step out in faith or be, or they're, they're convicted by the Holy Spirit to make the choice. And then once you're saved, there's also a, a sort of a, a difference between based on this question of can you lose your salvation or once you're saved, are you once saved, always saved? And so we believed you can in fact lose your salvation. We called it backsliding. You know, I, there is always some, someone, some, someone's brother or husband or uncle or someone who was, you know, had backslidden and we didn't see that person much anymore or something like this. Um, Maybe I should just so, open it at parentheses here. Backsliding yeah. is one of these terms I like to call Christianese. When oh yeah, when oh, you yeah. can't find in the book something that will support the doctrine, you find some terms that everybody kind of repeats until eventually that's how you read the book, right? It doesn't say yeah. backsliding in the New Testament, but somehow that's yeah. what's implied when you're reading. I don't know the the letters of Paul or something. So yeah, so it you like this is where the cultishness I think comes up is you develop a private language that only the people who have been oh, yeah. kind of duly initiated, it's not a secret society, but a lot of people come from the outside, they won't get it. A lot of the songs they won't get because a lot of them are written in Christianese. Uh, that, that's, that's sort right. of like cryptic language that not just reading the Bible, but also reading the Bible a certain way will let you understand. That's right. Sorry, let me close that parenthesis. I just thought it was something to throw in. That's totally true. And, and if you're familiar with Robert Lifton who has done a lot of the original research on uh, psychological manipulation and environments where people, um, you know, cult-like environments, he calls it loading the language. You know, it's using language in, in the way that you're describing. You have your own insider sort of, and other, you know, I work with tons and tons of scientists. They, they use jargon all the time that no one else can understand. And in that case, it adds specificity and that that's why they're using it in, in the assemblies of God. In my experience, it was not to add specificity. It was to actually replace critical thinking. 
and Lifton talks about this too. He, he calls it the use of thought terminating cliches. And so these are phrases that are easily remembered, uh, easily repeated, and they start to, over time, the more you use them and the more of them that you use, they start to replace actual critical thinking. So, oh, he's backslidden. Well, we under, with that word, we understand it to mean that, oh, he doesn't really believe this anymore. But there's, there's no sense of, well, why not? Why did he leave? Could it have been that what we were saying was not exactly persuasive? Did, did that person not feel like what we were saying is true? You know, are there problems on our side? And maybe he's he maybe he was right to leave. You know, there, there's none of that because it's just always oh, backslidden. He's out. Of, he's out. Of, he's out of the picture. There's no questioning of the doctrine or the method. It becomes confirmation bias. If the person leaves, yeah. then it must be there was something wrong with him. Or maybe like in the tradition I grew up in, maybe God just didn't choose him. He finally realized he's going to hell, yeah. so he's going to go spend those 30 years left to him, you know, doing something else, good riddance, that sort of thing. Yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> okay, let, let me move things along a bit because you're limited on time. Um, I asked you to read a chapter for our conversation written by Pastor Kenneth Garrett who was also at the ICSA convention. He also spoke on abusive churches and healthy churches. He himself was part in abusive church for many years, and then when he became a, he left the church, he became a pastor and decided to be a very different kind of pastor, one who was going to let people spend more times with their families and wasn't going to demand these like extreme levels of piety that are, are almost like supra-biblical. Um, so uh, Ken... Uh, kind of, dis uh, he describes in that chapter I lent you uh, different elements of uh, an abusive church. He calls it uh, seven indicators of spiritually abusive churches. So let me just name them quickly: uh, deception. Uh, in other words, not informing people entirely of what they believe in advance. Uh, loss, particularly the loss of resources, time, family. The church arts starts eating up a lot of your your energy and resources. Isolation, particularly from family and members of your, your, your entourage who are not part of that church, so you tend to not build friendships at work or outside the church as much. Elitism, the assumption that people who are not part of your, your church are somehow less holy. I remember growing up thinking about mm -hmm. the Assemblies of God people, and they speak in those tongues. They're crazy people. Yeah, they're going to heaven, but that's just because God took pity on them. You know, they're, they're not real yeah. brethren, right? That sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, and then there's um, mandated mandated disclosure, something we see in a lot of cults. Uh, maybe it's more subtle, I think, but almost the need to confess. I'm thinking particularly of our testimonies when we're trying to impress people with how many sins we've done before Jesus came and changed us. And then finally, trauma, particularly trauma after leaving the church. So my guess is, because I have spent some time with, with Pentecostals, if I can use that as a synonym for assemblies of God. And, and I've seen mm -hmm. a lot of these things, but they were more subtle than, say, when you're studying Scientology or, or other groups. So how did you right. see these things reflected in your own experience? And why would you use? Because I, I have a feeling some people listening to us, even people of my entourage, would say, how dare Paul call the assemblies of God a cult? So why do you think these apply to the churches that you belong to? Um, and why this to you is kind of a red flag for cultishness? Yeah, sure. Great question. So uh, let's consider deception, for example. And this was what my talk was about uh, at the ICSA conference. 
There is a, if you read the official literature coming out of the gospel publishing house, which is the assembly's in-house publisher, you can see a very clear intent to deceive people about the true history of the church. So when I mentioned Frank Sanford and his followers out on this, this, this racing yacht called the Coronet, they had two ships, one called the Kingdom, one called the Coronet. The, the Kingdom runs aground as they're sailing along the coast of Africa. Those people go on to the Coronet. So everyone's piled onto one ship right, right now, and uh, they don't have enough provisions to keep people alive. But Frank Sanford says, no, the mission is clear. We have to continue sailing and claiming these territories for the kingdom of God. The, the, God gave me this mission. I have to fulfill it. Even to the point where people on the ship started dying. And so eventually he had to bring the ship into, into shore. And, that, and that's when he got arrested, went, went to trial, went to prison uh, for doing this. And when you read the Assemblies of God's take on this, they say, well, he went to prison on for manslaughter, but disaster, disaster struck out at sea, you know, disaster struck and people died on the way back to shore. So that's you know, disaster struck. That's a clear euphemism. You know, when, with the, the indictment says he knowingly and willingly kept these people without provisions until they started dying. And I, I found actually from, from, uh, from an archives, I found a, a diary from a, a teenage kid who was on the ship, one of, the, one of the, the people who ended up dying. And you can see because his, his diary entries are dated, it took them six months to come into shore, right? It's not like, oh, it's disaster struck, which is very believable, right? It's, you know, it's, it has, disaster happens on the high seas all the time. Disaster struck, they came in and people died. Oh, very believable. You can see the writing there. And, and, and I, I, I'm a professional communication strategist. I write every day. You can see the intent to sort of thread the narrative around these sort of obstacles um, or these facts that would create real problems for the church if they were to point to this man who intentionally killed people as one of their founding fathers, because this is a guy who was very, uh, he was instrumental to some of some of the beliefs regarding the end times and and evangelism and this kind of thing. So they they point to him because they sort of have to, uh, but they create a narrative that's intended to deceive. One of the more uh, blatant ones is they have another story about a revival that happened in January 1, 1901, and it was the first recorded uh, Pentecostal revival in the modern era. And these followers of someone I mentioned earlier, Charles Parham, started speaking in other languages. And one woman named Agnes Osmond spontaneously, supernaturally, was given the ability to speak Chinese. And there's a historic, she, she actually tried to write Chinese on paper, and it was in the newspapers at the time. And you can, so you, it's part of the, the historical record. You can see it. Were there any Chinese people in the room who could say, I don't, I don't understand? <laughs> yeah, no, right? And, and I even sent it to a Chinese scholar and he wrote me back and, and said, it, this is, doesn't, doesn't in any way resemble Chinese. And yet in this official history book of the Assemblies of God, they have the same picture reproduced and they claim in the, in the caption, this is Agnes Osmond's writing in Chinese, right? And they use that 
as supposed evidence for this supernatural work, this miraculous work that that gave rise to the church, right? This is their origin story, basically. Mm. Um, so the deception, very, very clear one. Um, you know, isolation. Historically, the, the early members were uh, pretty isolationist. I I haven't seen it to the point of, you know, people living on their own communes and have been sort of physically isolated, but you see a lot of uh, sort of cultural isolation. So there was always this distinction between, well, we're the church and and some things are holy. And so we don't do them or go there like, and, and some of them you find in other really sort of conservative religions too, right? Like, you know, going to the movie theater and no going to school dances and, and these sorts of things. But there's also, you have to remember, there's this tension to really between sort of maintaining these sort of holy or sanct- sanctified behaviors, but also you, you they have a growth mandate. You know, they, the Assemblies of God used to publish a, a magazine called Global Conquest. That was the title. It was the title of their, it was what their global missionary program was called at one time. Their missionary program was called Global Conquest, and they had a, a, a magazine. So they have this growth mandate to grow and grow and grow. And at, at some at some points, that means you have to sort of compromise, right? Not everyone is gonna is gonna just hide themselves behind a wall like they did in in Shiloh or in the kingdom where everyone lived literally behind like this huge wall. That's no longer the case. But you, you know, I one of my very old friends, my earliest childhood hood, hood friends. Um, in the assemblies is now a pastor and he's on YouTube and, and he's out there telling parents, you know, he uses the word, you got it. Sometimes you have to isolate your kids from the world. So these sorts of things, but it's, it's on a spectrum. Um, One thing I see is a, is a bit of with the, with the elitism is there's a, reminds me of an official policy document that the assemblies of God has. And it's, it's their official stance on eternal punishment. And so this is, they basically group people into categories, people who will go to heaven and people who will be deserving of eternal punishment in an actual literal lake of fire. And it includes people who lack faith alongside murderers as people who they classify as quote unquote, actively evil and worthless. And so I, as, as reading, reading this, you know, being 20, 20 years out of the church, I have to tell you, you know, to read that I was actively evil, I was like, ha, ah, okay. But and worthless, don't forget worthless. <laughs> but worthless, <laughs> worthless, right? Like to read that, oh, I I'm worthless. I have to say, you know, that it hurt, you know, to to read that. So, and that's definitely a reflection of the elitism. We we would think, you know, we heard we had this term dead churches, you know, the Catholics up the road or the Episcopalians or the Presbyterians up the road. Those are those are dead churches. You know, yeah, there will be other denominations in, in heaven, but yeah, but also their churches are dead, you know, this this kind of thing. So if you want me to keep going, I can I can go right down the list, but that gives you a flavor. Well, no, I, I think we've given a good roundabout. In one of our previous episodes, I was talking with one of my friends, one of my good friends, uh, Scott House, and I went over some of my own little cultish experiences that, yeah. and they were not necessarily just in the Plymouth Brethren, they were with the Baptists, they were in the time that I spent in a choir with a Pentecostal group. Uh, you know, every now and then I think um, people have to be brought back to earth 
not that their beliefs, I mean, because belief is a belief. I don't think a cult has anything to do with a person's belief. I think it has right. to do with the way that they teach, the way that they uh, relate as a group, and particularly is there deception, is there arrogance, is there control, right? All of these things, I think, are what the definition of cultishness entails. Now, you, you might not have a lot of time left. Uh, I was hoping to do a quiz with you. Let's do it. Yeah, okay. no, let's let's okay. go for it. But also, let me ask before I forget. Now, uh, I actually kind of remained a cynical Christian, but I still identify as an evangelical. In many ways, like C.S. Lewis and Tolkien, they they said, I was born a Catholic or I was born an Anglican. This is where I may as well stay. Whether I, I agree with everything, it's probably better to be kind of consistent rather than changing all the time. Uh, where's your faith, if any? Where is it at now? Wow. This, this is something I, I wrestle with constantly because, you know, and, and this is just where I am in, in this journey. And a lot of, when I read the Bible, a lot of what Jesus says really resonates with me, you know? And I think if I hadn't been brought up in such uh, a, a controlling and what felt to me stifling and scary environment i might call myself a christian but i felt and maybe i'll be maybe that's where i'll end up at some place i don't know i i i don't see any evidence for the kind of god that uh, one who is all powerful all knowing and all good i don't see any evidence for that personally um but i do try to uh abide by some of the other things I learned that were actually really good, right? Like loving other people, loving your neighbor as yourself, the golden rule, these sorts of, these, these are principles that I think are fundamentally good and provide really good guidance for living, uh, for living life. Um, but I also want to be able to, I want to be able to pick and choose. And I, at this point in my, in my stage, I, I'm, I'm not a man. I wouldn't call myself a man of faith. Okay. Okay. Maybe like what Gandhi said once is I'm not too crazy about your God, but I really like your Jesus. So at some point, yeah. maybe there's a, there's at least a humanistic appeal yeah. before yeah. the metaphysics necessarily touch your heart. Uh, maybe again, yeah. who knows? Yeah. Uh, so if you have time, I'd like to do this lightning round, 10 questions, multiple choice. Let's do it. Are you good for that? Yeah. All right. Number one. Who was the founder of the Church of Scientology? A. L. Ron Hubbard. B. J. C. Penney. C. Charles Manson. Or D. Tom Cruise. Uh, Hubbard. Hubbard. Congratulations. <laughs> Ding. First point. Thank you. Uh, two. Sun Young Moon is the founder of a group that practices mass weddings, and is a vocal critic of communism. Is it called A. The Way of Truth? B. The Royal Society. C. The Unification Church. Or D, the Order of the Solar Temple? D, the Unification Church. All right, good. Two points. Three, David Berg, also known as Moses David, founded this promiscuous Christian sect that attracted new members with a technique called flirty fishing. Is it A, Opus Dei, B, the Children of God, C, the Assemblies of God, or D, the Children <laughs> of Men? It's it's B, the the children of God. The children of God. Congratulations. Yeah. Number also four, known as the family, right? Also known as the family. That's right. Um, 
Four, the Ku Klux Klan was glorified in a black and white silent film titled A. Gone with the Wind, B. The Great Dictator, C. Birth of a Nation, or D. Fast and Furious Five. <laughs> C. Birth of a Nation. Birth of a Nation, that's right. Number five, Charles Manson convinced his followers that the songs of the Beatles announced an impending race war that would destroy the United States. What song did he refer to? A. I Am the Walrus. B. Magical Mystery Tour. C. Obladi Oblada. Or D. Helter Skelter. Helter Skelter. Helter Skelter. Along with just about every other song on the White Album, I later learned. So Piggies, Revolution, Blackbird, <laughs> and probably Happiness is a Warm Gun. I think all of those kind of <laughs> fulfill the, the Charles Manson uh, oh. mission to, uh, to start a race war. Number six, the founder of the Heaven's Gate UFO cult, Marshall Applewhite, convinced his followers that they had to shed their bodies to embark on a spaceship that was following which comet? A, Halley's Comet, B, Cygnus X-1, C, Shoemaker-Levy 9, or D, Halley-Bopp? The Halley-Bopp. Congratulations. Cygnus X-1 is actually a black hole, and it was sung about by Rush, and their album of Farewell to Kings. <laughs> I have to throw in a Rush or Tom Cruise reference in every episode. <laughs> Seven, which terrorist act was presented by its perpetrator as an act of revenge for the fire that killed 76 Branch Davidian cult members in Waco, Texas in 1993? All right, so we're looking at an act of revenge. Was it A, the attack on Ruby Ridge? B, the Oklahoma City bombing? C, the World Trade Center bombing, or D, every song by Taylor Swift. <laughs> I believe that was Oklahoma City, right? Oklahoma B? City, you're right, yes. Yeah. Uh, Timothy McVeigh uh, was actually yeah. watching the fire from like a mile out up the road. Wow, I did yeah. not know that, jeez. Number eight. On November 18th, 1978, over 900 members of the Jonestown People's Temple community died in an act of revolutionary suicide after their leader, Jim Jones, had this American statesman assassinated. Was it A, Leo Ryan, B, Gerald Ford, C, Tony Stark, or D, Chancellor Palpatine? <laughs> be Leo Ryan. Leo Ryan. Congratulations. Mm. Nine, what evangelist and faith healer once proclaimed on TV that if he did not raise $8 million, God would take him home? Is it A, Benny Hinn, B, Benny Hanna, C, Oral Roberts, or D, Oral Hershiser? Oral Roberts. <laughs> Oral Roberts. You're familiar with Benny Hinn, though, right? I am, yeah. And there's another guy called Mike Murdoch. Have you heard of Mike Murdoch? Mike Murdoch, yep. Yep, he's got... I saw him speak. Dark, dark hair. Lots of hair, big beard. Uh, the man is all energy. And he didn't say God would take him home, but I remember him asking over and over, will you make a pledge of $1,000 to show your faith and your belief that God will yeah. heal you? I'm like, are we buying a healing or are we kind of here for a free handout? So anyways, yeah. yeah, Oral Roberts is the right answer. And then finally, 10, what pastor and televangelist was photographed in the company of a prostitute outside a hotel in 1988, leading him to Jimmy be... Swagger. That's right. But I want, oh, sorry. I want to hear your options. Oh, I was yeah, <laughs> leading him good. to be defrocked by the assemblies of God. Uh, Is it A. Jimmy Kimmel, B. Jimmy Swaggart, <laughs> uh, D. Jimmy Carter, 
or C, mm. Jimmy the Greek? <laughs> These are so good, man. I was really nervous when you told me we were going to have a quiz. Hey, well, you I know, wasn't that I, nervous. Uh, I can't make it too hard, but I, I, I did, I, I did, I, I didn't know how much you knew about these things. So you did some research, though. Uh, well, I've been reading about these. I've been teaching about them. So, uh, and uh, yeah, and I cheated a little bit. I actually went to an Assemblies of God quiz uh, website and all of their cults. Although the last couple, I had to add them. I don't think they were going to put Jimmy Swaggered in there. <laughs> um, but anyways, congratulations, hundred percent. That's Excellent. pretty good. Excellent. You should get free membership for Ixa for life. <laughs> I'll tell Jackie. Paul Jensen, it was it was great to have you here. Uh, our listeners will be listening to Jackie next, and also to Sarah and Nippy, former Nexium members, now uh, whistleblowers on the cause. So thank you for giving the kickoff to this special episode on uh, on Ixa and uh, the Cultish Culture Club. Thank you for that. Well, thanks, Michelle. I had a great time. I'm grateful for you having me on, and can't wait to talk to you soon. That's great. Take yeah. care, man. I will say God bless you. Hey, I'll accept it. Chapter 1, The High Cabal and the Lynch Mob. Who hides evidence? Criminals hide evidence. Let's have trial by combat. All of us here today do not want to see our election victory stolen by emboldened radical left Democrats, which is what they're doing, and stolen by the fake news media. We will never give up. We will never concede. It doesn't happen. You don't concede when there's theft involved. We will stop the steal. I know that everyone here will soon be marching over to the Capitol building to peacefully and patriotically make your voices heard. Our country has been under siege for a long time. Madam Speaker, I have constituents outside this building right now. I promised my voters to be their voice. It's my duty under the U.S. Constitution to object to the counting of the electoral votes of the state of Arizona. The members who stand here today and accept the results of this concentrated, coordinated, partisan effort by Democrats, where every fraudulent vote cancels out the vote of an honest America, has sided with the extremist left. 55 to 50 be advised, the Capitol Police one advised are trying to breach and get to the Capitol. They were peaceful people. These were great people. The crowd was unbelievable. And I mentioned the word love. The love, the love in the air. I've never seen anything like it. And that was a clip of the January 6, 2021 storming of the U.S. Capitol, or whatever you want to call it, proving that you don't need to belong to an organized religious sect or esoteric self-help program to lose your humanity. The following essay is an abridged version of a paper I delivered at the 2023 ICSA conference in Louisville, Kentucky. You will find a link to the video presentation in the Media Bunker section of our website. Conspiracy theories and the communities who espouse them share several similarities with high-control groups, frequently labeled cults. Like many cultish groups, 
communities of conspiracy researchers frequently indulge in various forms of disinformation to assert their moral outrage and vindicate their feelings of victimhood, namely through distorting and mythologizing the past and scapegoating their perceived enemies. Belief in conspiracy theories has been described by scholars as a type of alternative or postmodern religious expression. Examples include the ways many conspiracists perceive themselves as the victims of official dogmas, their missionary zeal to save others from ignorance, their social identity as a stigmatized minority, their proclivity to mythologize the past, and to scapegoat their enemies. Conspiracism is a cultish phenomenon that appeals especially to the powerless and those afraid of losing power. Conspiracism is not the product of mental illness or of political radicalism per se. Rather, it is a byproduct of a larger existential problem, produced by our deep need for self-affirmation, social belonging, and an uplifting historical narrative. To scapegoat is to arbitrarily ascribe blame to a person or group irrespective of any known proof of their guilt, based on how much of a threat they are perceived to be, not what they actually did. It allows the ones passing blame the satisfaction of putting a face on the source of some ill-defined evil. It lets them abdicate responsibility, and it allows them to engage in acts of group violence or ostracism that are then justified as necessary abuses of justice in the pursuit of a greater good. The French-born literary anthropologist René Girard believed that all archaic myths contain an implicit moral code steeped in victim-blaming, retribution, and mob violence that continues to influence modern art and literature from revolutionary political manifestos to Hollywood films. He called this mindset mimetic violence, but better known now as the scapegoating mechanism. It is the human tendency to visit verbal, physical, or psychological violence on individuals whose guilt is assumed rather than proven and whose implicit purpose is to unite a divided community against a common but fictitious or largely exaggerated threat. Let us summarize this theory through five key concepts, which Girard describes using the Greek terms mimesis, or imitation, scandalon, or taking offense, pharmakos, scapegoat, or medicine, and catharsis, or purification. The first is mimetic desire. Humans need to live in communities to achieve fulfillment, safety, and well-being. They also derive their personal identities from the groups they belong to. And imitation, or mimesis, helps them survive and thrive as a society. We share work, duties, values, and ideas by imitating others. But imitation comes at a cost. There is eternal scarcity in the objects of our desires. The second concept is that of scandalon, or taking offense. We take offense at the individuals and groups whose ideas contradict our own, whose fortunes expose our misfortunes, who control what we covet, and whose words or very existence threatens our values and self-identity. When the ego is threatened by a crisis of meaning, faith, or security, it seeks out someone to blame, who triggers our mistrusts, fears, or jealousies. The third concept is pharmakos, or scapegoating. It was not unusual in archaic societies to persecute a usable victim, 
one that could be readily blamed, often wrongly, as the cause of public crisis. Socrates and Jesus are certainly two people who come to mind. The pharmakoi is a term that was used to describe public disruptors in ancient Greece. The term comes from the term for poison or drug. They were idealized villains that could serve as a plausible threat to public order and established norms. Scapegoats are not always innocent flowers, but the blame they carry is disproportionate to whatever they, as individuals, may have done. Nevertheless, the perpetrators home in on them with a single-minded fury and incoherent motives. The scapegoat mechanism is a visceral instinct that overrides our intellectual faculties and moral conscience with emotional knee-jerks that are fed by our need to preserve ties to the group whose approval we desire at all costs. In our desire for acceptance and emotional closure, we remain blind to the possibility that the enemy is innocent and a victim of our outrage, not the cause of it. Cultish beliefs and conspiracy theories are prime examples of the scapegoating instinct which compels their followers to adopt a simplistic us-versus-them attitude towards non-believers, dismissing them as dupes or devils, or both. The fourth concept is mimetic violence, or violence by imitation. Through its demonization of rivals, mimetic desire produces an unending chain of moral scandals and scapegoats. To deal with these recurring crises, groups visit various forms of violence on their perceived enemies. Initially, the fear of being singled out invites restraint, until a first Avenger, no, I don't mean Captain America, takes it upon themselves to cast the first stone. The imitative process then weakens restraint, as it becomes easier and more rewarding for individuals to follow the group and cast their own stones, until the act becomes the norm, and those who fail to follow suit are themselves perceived as heretics, traitors, spies, or freeloaders. Those fearing to be targeted by the mob succumb to peer pressure and accept the new consensus as binding. Those who oppose it suffer the wrath of the crowd. Acts of collective violence are perpetual themes in the history of cults and of conspiracy movements, namely in the form of witch hunts, inquisitions, show trials, and expulsions. The harshest treatment is often reserved to members who voluntarily choose to leave the group. The fifth concept is purification, or catharsis. The expulsion or destruction of a scapegoat produces a unifying experience and a newfound peace among the cultish or conspiracist community. But this is illusory and only temporary. The quintessential characteristic shared by cultists and conspiracists is their collective assurance that they are both blameless and justified to visit retribution on their perceived enemies, and that these enemies are necessarily guilty and deserving of punishment. A powerful allegory of the scapegoat mechanism, seen in cultish and conspiracist groups, can be found in that famous scene called The Two Minutes Hate, in George Orwell's insightful dystopian novel, 1984. Quote, A hideous grinding screech, as of some monstrous machine running without oil, burst from the big telescreen at the end of the room. The face of Emmanuel Goldstein, the enemy of the people, had flashed onto the screen. Goldstein was the renegade and backslider who once long ago, how long ago, nobody quite remembered, 
had been one of the leading figures of the party and then had engaged in counter-revolutionary activities. He was the primal traitor, the earliest defiler of the party's purity. All subsequent crimes, all treacheries, acts of sabotage, heresies, deviations, sprang directly from his teachings. Goldstein was advocating freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom of assembly, freedom of thought. The sight or even the thought of Goldstein produced fear and anger automatically. His theories were refuted, smashed, ridiculed, held up to the general gaze for the pitiful rubbish that they were. He was the commander of a vast shadowy army, an underground network of conspirators dedicated to overthrow the state. The hate rose to a frenzy. People were leaping up and down in their places and shouting at the tops of their voices, Swine! 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 The horrible thing about the two minutes' hate was not that one was obliged to act apart, but that it was impossible to avoid joining in. Within thirty seconds, any pretense was always unnecessary. A hideous ecstasy of fear and vindictiveness, a desire to kill and torture, to smash faces in with a sledgehammer, seemed to flow through the whole group of people like an electric current, turning one even against one's will into a grimacing, screaming lunatic. The hostile figure melted into the face of Big Brother. A little sandy-haired woman had flung herself forward over the back of the chair in front of her. With a tremulous murmur that sounded like, My Savior, she extended her arms towards the screen. End quote. Orwell's futuristic nightmare merges racist and class-based hatred seamlessly to suggest that all humans have the propensity to truck their intellectual faculties for a more empowering sense of social inclusion and vindicated outrage. Goldstein is the ultimate existential threat to this miserable society, an ignorant, slavish, superstitious, uncharitable, and self-dehumanizing hive of imitative worker bees. Does the evil Goldstein even exist? The protagonist, Winston Smith, temporarily doubts it, and also understands that Big Brother is a liar and a tyrant, but consciously acknowledging this fact, even quietly to himself, is dangerous. It could lead Winston to subtly betray his sustained efforts to fit in and avoid being tagged as a traitor and heretic by the hysterical mob and watchful state apparatus. Admitting that Goldstein is possibly innocent of the charges laid against him would further rob Winston's own life of meaning and purpose. It is precisely because the imagined enemy is so despicably fearsome that Winston and his fellow minions are able to abdicate all responsibility for their own hateful behavior. The two minutes hate described by Orwell is a cathartic event that purges their basic desires. It gives them a common target, a scapegoat, on which to unload their resentment offering them through this ecstatic experience a sense of group unity and of moral certainty. No matter how false the story they are performing might be, it is a story, writes Orwell, quote, so exaggerated and perverse that a child should have been able to see through it, end quote. Like the participants of the two minutes hate, conspiracists and cultists alike are not as interested as they claim in the pursuit of objective truth. Whether or not their scapegoats are genuinely guilty is not their primary concern. 
Scapegoating is most effective in a highly cohesive and self-isolating community, bound together by mutual feelings of alienation, victimhood, and resentment, and mobilized by a powerful ideology based on a set of unfalsifiable beliefs, and an alternative and toxic form of spirituality. Historians of religion, David Robertson and Asbjorn Durendal, identify several similarities between networks of conspiracy theory believers and religious communities that obsess over paranormal phenomena, spiritual enlightenment, or impending doomsday scenarios. These similarities include, firstly, a life-changing commitment. A total commitment to the ideology is first required so that the believer may be able to perceive the evidence as evidence. Failure to fully accept the ideology as necessarily true is taught to be a moral failure on the part of the follower, not the fault of an imperfect theory or of an imperfect teacher who promotes it. A belief in a conspiracy theory, like membership in an exclusive religious sect, requires making a leap of faith imbuing that theory with a sacred status that shapes every part of that person's identity, their social behavior, their relationships, and their life choices. A second similarity between cults and conspiracy theorists is a belief in grand, simplifying narratives that frame the whole of human history as a war of attrition between a select and morally pure human remnant and the worldwide dominion of the powers of evil. In both cases, the community defines itself as the enlightened guardians of an ambitious explanation for the existence of suffering and evil, and their doctrines as a utopian roadmap for the creation of a new moral order. A third similarity discussed by Robertson and Durandal is rolling prophecy. Such groups multiply prophetic utterances about the world that is to come, congratulating themselves for predicting events that come to pass, often accidentally or only in part, and explaining away or ignoring the predictions they got completely wrong. Such prophecies are more often than not an assemblage of beliefs drawn selectively from an ideological buffet of orthodox and alternative faiths. These dogmas are then reinforced with cherry-picked evidence and repackaged to suit the needs and convictions of the community. This helps explain why conspiracy theories and cults both evolve quickly to remain pertinent to their followers, attractive to prospective new members, and to maintain the credibility of their leaders. The appearance of infallibility is crucial to ensure that the researcher or the prophet keeps the group from seeking out mainstream or orthodox explanations. Finally, a fourth similarity between cultists and conspiracists is their dualistic worldview that divide the whole world into rigid categories of good and evil, with large menageries of heroes and villains. They have their persecuted messiahs, their saintly prophets, their devils, and their apostates. They also have rituals and meetings where the faithful are reassured that they will emerge victorious in the war against evil as well as rites of passage, such as pilgrimages to sacred spaces. As discussed in an earlier episode, I believe that both of these terms, conspiracist and cultish, can be defined and used objectively if they are used to describe a type of belief system or behavior. 
I now further contend that they are not merely similar phenomena, but interlocking mechanisms that deceptively manipulate information as well as the trust, fears, hate, and desires of vulnerable lackeys to further the self-interests of a few. There are, of course, many differences between cultists and conspiracy theorists. While cultists are often trained to behave like obsequious children, conspiracists are more likely to explode in cantankerous adolescent outrage. While cults usually have a rigid hierarchy of power, like the Catholic Church, conspiracists are more likely to exist in a decentralized patchwork of overlapping faith groups, like Protestants, that listen to the same set of teachers but interpret their teachings separately and selectively. While cultists frequently live together in a closed physical environment, where their leaders control information tightly and impose their teachings on the members wholesale, the decentralized nature of conspiracist communities, in which each member is encouraged to independently do their own research, affords the conspiracist greater freedom to construct their own personalized conspiracy doctrine. But on the whole, there are more than enough similarities and overlaps between conspiracist groups and cultish religions to call them interlocking phenomena, and more than enough historical cases where the two phenomena are so intertwined as to be one and the same, such as Jonestown, Scientology, the followers of David Koresh, Heaven's Gate, the Order of the Solar Temple, QAnon, and many others. I would further argue that conspiracism is a politicized form of cultishness, one that presents itself as the legitimate watchdog of corrupt epistemic authorities, like governments, think tanks, academia, and mainstream news media, much in the same way that high-control faith communities paint themselves as the guardians of a purified revelation reclaimed from corrupt religious orthodoxies. And because they are both contrarian in nature, they can adapt to changing realities, tolerate multiple contradictory claims, and even reinvent themselves to appeal to groups who previously found them repugnant or irrational. Conspiracism and cults both simplify the problems of evil and suffering by projecting blame onto a useful enemy, giving them the ability to justify acts of ostracism and aggression against those whose different beliefs cannot be tolerated while providing their believers with a false sense that the evil in question has been identified and addressed. Unable to see themselves for what they truly are, vindictive cabals and lynch mobs, without exposing their very own values and egos to criticism, conspiracists and cultists justify their acts of mimetic violence as legitimate and necessary abuses of power in the pursuit of a greater communal good. Humans naturally prefer simple, empowering myths over complex, inconvenient truths. When our search for truth clashes with our desire to find purpose and acceptance, we must remain on our guard not to fall prey to simplistic and self-serving conclusions. Being political animals, humans are drawn towards groups who share their interests and culture, as well as their basic assumptions about good and evil. When their trust in institutions wanes and their need for reassurance waxes, stigmatized communities will turn increasingly inwards, taking refuge inside echo chambers that hinder their ability to relate healthily with non-believers. One way to guard against this 
is to actively avoid joining groups that present themselves as allies united against a common enemy, and to engage in meaningful friendships with neighbors and colleagues, especially those who hold different worldviews. This is because allies have an expiry date. The relationship is based on convenience and self-interest. Friends, on the other hand, look out for each other's well-being, irrespective of the personal cost. The best way to bring positive change to any society is not by making allies in the trenches, but by making friends across the divide. I thought I'd die fighting side by side with an elf. What about side by side with a friend? Chapter 2. Laugh is like a box of trauma. What's up? Good morning. Are you prepared for Jehovah's return? Because if you're not, I have a plan for you. That... Well, you... Today I'm speaking with Jackie Johnson, who is a, a doctor of social work, and she is a clinical social worker. Uh, she works with cult recovery victims. She is also the executive director of ICSA, the International Cultic Studies Association. That's primarily the reason why we brought her in. We want to talk about the organization, but we also want to get to know her personally. Jackie, welcome to Paranoid Planet. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be doing this with you today. Well, I'm happy to have you on the show. Uh, where are you talking to us from today? I am talking to you from sunny Savannah, Georgia. Savannah, Georgia. I was there yes. back uh, last uh, December with my kids. We were driving down to West Palm Beach, not not to visit Donald Trump, uh, but my mother does <laughs> have some property nearby. Uh, I, not in like, not not in uh, the, the side of the water where all the, the billionaires and <laughs> pedophiles you know live uh so <laughs> i'm happy to say it's it's a little bit more humble than that uh but yeah so we actually stayed a night in savannah and it's my second time through the city i always think it's very nice the people are lovely thank you yeah i really enjoy the lifestyle down here it's relaxing and it's beautiful and fun and my daughter is here okay. with my granddaughter so we have a lot of nice family time it's also where that park bench is where forrest gump asked people if they wanted some chocolate right Yes, that's correct. That did happen in one of our squares here downtown. Yes. So uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, you've already mentioned you're from Savannah, Georgia. Uh, so uh, what kind of life have you had? What do you do for a living uh, in 30 seconds or less or whatever time you want? <laughs> well, um, most people know that I was raised um, in Jehovah's Witnesses. So, you know, most people do know that I was raised in quote a cult um i was in jehovah's witnesses with my parents and my family since i was 10 years old and as many people who found find themselves in cults it took me a very long time to leave i was finally able to leave um in and out in and out for years through my younger years through you know into middle age um when i was about 52 years old i was finally able to leave um, in that time, I put myself through school, um, during opportunities where I could do that, um, opportunities where I was out of the Jehovah's Witness organization because they don't support college or education. So, 
um, during some of those times where I was out of the organization. Uh, and I don't call it a religion for specific reasons. So it, I will refer to them as an organization. Um, I put myself through school and became a licensed clinical social worker and therapist. And um, it wasn't until after I went through my own cult recovery work that I decided to focus my practice on working with individuals or family members of individuals who had uh, been in cults or high demand, high control situations, environments, or even abusive relationships, because I feel that um, even being in a cult has the same dynamics of abuse and power as um, sometimes like interpersonal uh, relationships or intimate partner violence. So that's how I came into my profession. Um, almost one year ago, I became the executive director for the International Cultic Studies Association upon the retirement of Dr. Michael Langoni. And so that is what I'm doing now. I am the executive director for ICSA and still maintaining my private practice. And you're able to juggle both of those things without uh, neglecting your family? Well, um, without neglecting the two dogs that oh. I live with, <laughs> okay, yes. <all> right. <laughs> <laughs> Who are your family? They're your family. Yes, yes I, they certainly are. They're right here okay. with me now. Right. That's good. Yes. Now, uh, do you feel that uh, having grown up in this organization, um, do you feel that there's anything that still has shaped your personality? Not necessarily the belief system, but has that made you kind of a perfectionist? Does that mean that you often carburate through shame like I do? You know, I grew up in a, a fairly strongly Calvinistic Christian background. I wouldn't call it cultish, mm -hmm. but I would look back sometimes fondly and sometimes not on my upbringing. Are there any things that you feel that you've carried with you for good or for ill from that experience? I do. And I think it's common with most people who've left a group, you know, especially when you're born in or raised in all of those developmental years, you know, the years of human development. Um, and we continue developing until we are deceased, you know, but but the formative years of development are shaped by not just the belief system of the cult that you're in, but the lifestyle of the cult that you're in and the expectations and a lot of the psychological processes that you are exposed to when you're raised in a cult or any type of group dynamic or relationship that abuses power and control. So. Um, most specifically, what, what do I notice that I've that's lingered the most? Um, I, probably issues with authority, but that goes both ways. You know, so a lot of people have issues with authority where they don't want anyone telling them what to do when they, you know, have to take some time and balance that out and not be reactive to authorities. But I think um, for me, because of the way that I was raised, um, and the personality of the Jehovah's Witness organization makes you um, overly compliant and you don't have a voice. And so you're constantly deferring to others. You're constantly making sure that your decisions are okay. You're constantly seeking um, advice or guidance beyond, you know, what is required. And so that's something that is, um, you know, a learning curve for many people. And, and I think that would be one thing that I would say about myself. Um, it's not really connected to a lack of confidence or a lack of self-esteem. It's just that you get really conditioned to needing other people's okay before you do something. Um, so yeah, I think, I think 
you know, that would be something that I would share or say. Mm -hmm. In in our program here, because we deal primarily with conspiracy beliefs, uh, in your experience, uh, is was there much paranoia, uh, whatever way we might (laughs) define that term, uh, either in yourself or in the community that you 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 worshipped with? Well, yes, absolutely. So you know, in in the cult world, we talk a lot about persecution complex. And Dr. Lifton, Robert J. Lifton, you know, in his thought reform research, talks a lot about uh, persecution complex. And um, absolutely, Jehovah's Witnesses struggle with persecution complex. And it gets a little bizarre because for an organization that claims that they are, you know, that they have the true version of the Bible, that they, you know, are worship the only true God, that they condemn um, um, oh, I'm sorry, but like the supernatural and the occult and all of that, they are an extremely superstitious organization, but they don't see it that way, you know, so there can be a lot of superstitious beliefs. Um, like if you buy something from, um, a yard sale or an antique shop, uh, most likely that's been possessed by a demon at some point or demons have been around that. And so if you bring that into your home, you know, you're going to invite demons into your home. Or if you watch um, spiritistic movies, you're inviting demons into your home. But there's also an element of persecution complex and paranoia due to the authorities. Um, So, you know, other than that kind of superstitious fun stuff, um, things go a little bit deeper when the witnesses talk amongst themselves and when the uh, authority figures and Jehovah's Witnesses talk down to the um, general, you know, uh, worshipers, um, that the authorities are really out to get them, that because they are God's only true people on earth, because their governing body, which I think eight or nine men at this point, are the only true spokespeople for God, that Satan, the devil who runs the world is out to get them because it's really a war between Satan and their God, Jehovah. And so everything that we see in this world, the witnesses say, is really orchestrated by Satan to bring down Jehovah God's true people. And so it it really does alter the way that, you know, your basic Jehovah's Witness worshiper views the world around them. It changes the way that they view other people. Um, because everyone is basically an agent of Satan, the devil, because just by virtue of the fact that they're not one of Jehovah's Witnesses. So there is a lot of paranoia, which is what um, kind of leads to the insular nature of Jehovah's Witnesses, where they won't be friends with anyone outside the organization, where they don't take part in anything that's not created or originated by the organization. And I would say that they're really it, there is paranoia, you know, in, in that. Um, the sad thing is that when you're raised in that belief system, particularly when you're born in, you really can't tell that it's a paranoid belief system. Um, and so it takes a lot of years of unindoctrination and, you know, kind of undoing a lot of that conditioning and feeling safe in the outside world um, once you exit to really start acknowledging that there's some paranoia there to deal with. And it can get, it can get dangerous sometimes, you know, if someone happens to have some 
struggles with mental health and that mental health is not treated, you can see where paranoia can turn sometimes into psychosis and can get dangerous. So it it's something to really watch. Um, if, if people have family members who are in systems with paranoid thinking like that, to really be careful if there's a mental health component to keep an eye on that and to see what possibly, you might not be able to do anything about them leaving the cult or changing their belief system, but you can maybe encourage them to get some mental health assistance so that that paranoia doesn't lead down the road of, of dangerous psychotic thinking or behavior. Do you do therapy primarily with people who left the JW church or uh, do you see a wide, uh, a wide gamut of former members? Um, in the past couple of years, my practice has focused mostly on Jehovah's Witnesses and people who have left Nexium. Oh. And probably Nexium because um, I'm from the Hudson Valley in New York. I just moved to Savannah two years ago. Um, and so um, people from Nexium, you know, probably found me as a New York practitioner. Um, and so my practice really has been half and half you know, most coming from Jehovah's Witnesses or Nexium. Um, and I've had a few other Mormon, um, one from Unification Church, Moonies, one from Scientology, but mostly um, Jehovah's Witnesses and Nexium. Would you know Sarah Edmondson personally? I I don't. Sarah and I have not met. We emailed a couple of years ago um, in a short email exchange, but I don't, we haven't met. Yeah, well, be sure to tell her that you said hi. <laughs> yes, yes, and I know that she now lives in the in the state of Georgia where I reside. Oh, okay, well, well, there you go. So. Maybe I can arrange something for you guys to, uh, yes. to hang out. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, tell yes. us a little bit about your private practice before we talk about ICSA proper. Uh, what would be like a typical cultish experience? What What do people generally come see you uh, requiring help with? There's a few things that are typical of people exiting cults, you know, from a mental health perspective, one is the, there can be some very extreme um, psychological turmoil when one recognizes that the group that they were in, the group that they held dearly, their loved ones may still be in, they spent an exorbitant amount of time perhaps in this group, of realizing that that group was quote a cult. And I say quote, because we could be referring to anything that includes a constellation of certain <clears throat> elements of the abuse of power and control. So when someone realizes that either that's what their parents raised them in and oh my goodness, decades of my life were spent there or they join themselves and there could be a lot of shame around that. Oh my goodness, what did I get myself into? That breeds a lot of shame for some people. Um, that the assistance in, in coming to terms with that is a huge, huge lift for people. Um, that requires some time and, and a lot of support. But other elements of, of cult recovery work include trauma recovery. So inevitably, just by nature of what a cult is, the, the abuse of power and control, amongst other things, there's bound to be trauma because it's an abusive situation. So there's all sorts of ways that people can be abused in some of these organizations and environments. And that trauma needs to be processed 
people need to heal from that. A lot of times people, that's all they know. They don't even realize that it's been traumatic. So there takes a lot of um, psychoeducational work around trauma, a lot of um, talking about what is a healthy environment, what are healthy relationships in order to, for someone to discern and determine that what they had been in is in fact unhealthy um, and traumatic. But the most important, well, I shouldn't say most important, but a very important component that I do in my work um, is identity work. So, you know, my process usually starts off with some psychoeducation to help people get through that realization that they were in a cult. We move into trauma recovery work to help people, you know, kind of process their trauma. And then we move into identity work because the other thing that happens with people when they're leaving a group or relationship like this is so much of their identity has either been lost or taken or stolen or changed. Or if they were born and raised in a group, they never had an opportunity in the first place to create an identity of their own and they don't know themselves. So you come out of a group and you're like, I don't know who I am because my whole life I was told to be this and I built an identity around that, but I just left that all behind. And so people sometimes don't even know what their favorite color is. And I don't mean to sound silly about that, but when you don't have the opportunity to learn to think for yourself, to spend time on what your preferences are, to um, understand what your own personal values are, or make your own judgments about the way that you see the world around you, you're really in a lost state about yourself. So no matter what group someone has come from, that finds their way onto my Zoom screen. Um, you know, it, it's these typical elements that people struggle with, I find. And so I kind of structure my work in that way. It's not a literal linear process, but these three components are important. Psychoeducation and trauma recovery, and then some identity work. And doing things basically in that order is helpful. Because people are not going to be able to process their trauma or do identity work when they're still feeling shame or confusion. And people are not going to be able to build a clear identity about themselves if they're still afflicted with trauma. So that's the process that we go through um, or that I go through with my clients. Um, and it's painful to work with people. I mean, you know, and I've gone through cult recovery work myself. So it's painful being the one in cult recovery therapy, but it's, it's very painful doing the work because you really get to see firsthand how people have suffered so much of their life and how, you know, but, but it's also inspiring because the bravery, <laughs> the bravery that people have to get out of groups and to rediscover or to create an identity of their own and to brave the painful, hurtful past and try to move past it is so it's just really inspiring. Um, so I think I answered your question in a very long, very long answer. It was very good. It's very good. No, I was going to say that um, although I was raised in a religious background, I, I've sometimes felt that one group or another were just a little bit too were too much towards like a, a cultish zone without really feeling fully part of that kind of high control group. Uh, my my experience was more what I call leaving the Church of Oliver Stone. 
Uh, I was a conspiracy theory believer. And I think a lot of those same things, you know, the the fear that you're always being watched, in this case, like by the CIA or, or, or some other group, uh, this, this uh, clear division between us versus them, uh, almost um, superstitious thinking, like you were mentioning, you know, thinking that somehow there's technology out there that can, that can do great damage. But, you know, most scientists would say, no, that, that doesn't exist, that can't happen. And still you're certain that it must happen. So and then there's a supernatural element as well because you know if you if you grow up religious you think well there are demons or other types of beings behind this so even if humans are not that powerful something else might be so I I see a lot of overlap and and that's what drew me to Ixa uh, back last June and that's where we met uh, you were at the front table with Mike Kropfeld one of our former guests and so I, I was very happy to meet you and at the same time I thought well that you'd be a great candidate to come and tell us a little bit about Ixa. Uh, what they do, and what purpose they serve in this kind of cult-rich environment that we live in. Yeah, thank you. And and just a word about, you know, kind of non-religious cults. Um, I, I just want to throw out there that that really, understanding that helped me a lot in, in my own recovery work. I, there was um, a recording from Margaret Singer that I found on YouTube where she said a cult can be a book club and it like hit me like a ton of bricks. Like it's not about the content necessarily of the group. It's about the way that the group operates. And so I thank you for mentioning that point, because I think it's helpful to listeners to understand um, that a cult can really be political, social, anything, not just religious. Um, so back to Ixa. <laughs> thank you. Back to Ixa. Um, Ixa's mission is to provide, I'm not reading a mission statement, but you know, it's it's published, is to provide education and support to people who have left cults or to family members who have um, a loved one in a cult. So we provide a lot of educational content, um, of course, mainly in the form of our large um, annual international conference. Um, we provide content in terms of webinars and workshops um, for mental health professionals, for people who have exited cults, for people who have family members still in cults, or the general public. Um, so we're busy providing content a lot, um, webinars, um, books, we've published books. ICSA's main um, kind of purpose or one of one of our main purposes that's most important to me personally is to provide a network for professionals to gather. So, you know, I, I feel like that's what we are and that's what I want to focus on is how can ICSA become um, the gathering place for people who are interested in cults, podcasters like yourself, mental health professionals, former uh, cult members, families, um, how can we be um, the one who kind of gets the network together and, and keeps people connected to each other, to share resources, to learn from each other? Um, we also produce a, a magazine, um, tries to be quarterly, ICSA Today, um, and also an academic journal, the International Journal of Coercion, Abuse, and Manipulation. So in that way, too, we're, we're kind of moving toward um, our mission of of keeping the network together in terms of research and writings and information um, in a place where professionals and, and even people who are not professionals can learn from each other and support each other. So 
so my goal for ipsa is to grow that is to is to grow the way that we uh, become that network for individuals where ipsa is not the ones who are providing the cult recovery services we're not the ones working with individuals but we're the ones who are building the network and so um in that way i really want ipsa to be open to everyone um and, and it goes along with our kind of statement about dialogue that we are um, open to hearing different points of view so that we can support people and keep the conversation going. Because I think if we don't do that, um, we can lose a lot of people to cults. <laughs> we have to be willing to tolerate discussions and viewpoints that um, we may not agree with, but so that we can continue to keep people engaged because to me, and maybe it's my mental health professional, you know, kind of understanding is, you know, the way that you keep people engaged is to keep the conversation going and not to, to cut people off because you disagree. So I'd like Ixa to focus on that, of being the network where people gather. One thing I really appreciated at the conference, I found that there was a nice mixture of academic and non-academic authors presenting there were former members, you know, people who would uh, be call themselves victims, maybe others who were just have a professional interest. And most importantly, it was really a network, a community, because, you know, uh, you, you can go out for a beer or you, we went out on that steamship afterwards. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, I made a lot of friends and I don't I can't say that I would do that at a conference. At a conference, you might make contacts, but I made friends at the ICSA conference in Louisville. And it's too bad that you'll be in uh, Barcelona, I think, next year. That's a little bit out of my price range. I don't know if my college will pay for that one. But apparently you're coming to Montreal in a couple of years. So I I'm looking forward to that. I'm sure Mike Cropfeld had something to do with it. Um, so <laughs> uh, anyway, so I I'm looking forward to remaining uh, a member or at least a member at large uh, to keep an eye. It's not primarily my field, but I find that there's so much overlap between high control groups and conspiracy thinking uh, the way that I, yeah. I I compare them during my presentation was that you know high control groups cults if we want are kind they're very like Catholic I say this in air quotes in the sense that they're top down there's a guru or a pope that tells everybody what to do and the conspiracy theory groups tend to be more quote unquote Protestant in the sense that everyone's their own priest everyone has their own research and then they gather together and compare notes like uh, i guess a gathering of evangelical pastors except they're all nuts you know i assuming that not all evangelical pastors are nuts i i know a few and some of them are very nice agree with me or not i don't know how well you know conspiracy theories i said these are interlocking mechanisms in the sense that they sometimes appeal for the same reasons powerlessness helplessness the need for community the need to answer the problem of evil and they provide quick answers they provide friendships but unlike the ixa conference they're toxic right they 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 it's like that um hotel california song right you can check out anytime you want <laughs> but you can never leave so um yeah so i'm really appreciative of that work along with what info cult here in montreal has done and a number of other people mm. in private practice like yourself, you know, uh, Daniel Shaw is a person that is both a member of ICSA and uh, he's written quite a bit. Uh, so, yeah. So thank you very much for that. I, I really appreciated both the invitation, uh, the chance to present, but also to meet all these great people, including yourself.
Appreciate that. We we try. I say we because this is only my first year of doing the exit conference, <laughs> but I've attended a number of them over the years. Um, but yes, and moving forward, we we do try to make it uh, comfortably socially for people because it can be for most people such a difficult thing to face you know, to face that they have been in a cult and to be immersed in an environment like a conference where that's all that's being discussed. Um, so people need support in that type of conference. It's not just an academic conference. You know, it's it's very much developmental and emotional um, and people need a lot of support. So we try to make sure that the conference is safe and comfortable so that people can get the support they need. And make friends by virtue of having something in common and supporting each other. And we've gotten feedback from a number of people with similar experiences and sentiments as yours. So thank you for sharing that. I think, um, you know, back to what you were saying about the commonality between conspiracy theorists and, and cults and everything else, I couldn't agree more. And, and the other thing too, is I think that one thing that draws people to these systems is the need for understanding the world around them, you know, and you, and you basically said that, you know, the need to understand evil, but I think there's so many people who, who lack guidance or who lacked guidance in their developmental younger years that when something comes along and it's a belief system that makes sense and helps them understand the world around them. And they have a sense of scaffolding or, you know, lack of a better word, handholding or guidance from a group. Let's say they never had supportive parents or whatever. Um, it They can latch on because not just the sense of communal belonging, you know, like that needing of a sense of community, but that they they understand the world around them the way that other people do. And there, there can be real connection in that. And in that way, you know, cult leaders really do exploit um, people who are most needy. Um, you see, I know even Jehovah's Witnesses, they kind of um, go with people who need to understand death, you know, when they hold out these promises for what they believe happens after someone dies. And people will become Jehovah's Witnesses based on just that, you know, kind of needing to understand that. And they finally have something that makes them feel better. So I couldn't agree more with what you said earlier about, you know, the things that the way that these groups operate um, that appeal to people and bring people in. Well, Jackie, before you go, I have one last thing. Please don't be scared. It's called the question jar. Are you willing to answer the question jar? I am. Right. <laughs> there we go. Let's dig really deep <laughs> so that we're both surprised. Oh, uh, are you are you a Gen Xer? Are you kind of uh, born with, I guess you're born between uh, 60 and 75? Yes. Okay, all right. So uh, this, is, this might apply to Gen Xers. Which Star Wars character would you most like to kill with a lightsaber? Oh, <laughs> it always gets a little bit morbid, but... I don't know. I mean, I have to admit embarrassingly that I I was never really a Star Wars fan. It just but I can answer the question this way, I think. I don't think that I would like to kill any Star Wars character because inevitably there's going to be a fan of that character who would be really sad if that character was I can killed. think of one exception. Have you ever oh. heard of Jar Jar Binks? 
No. No, Jar Jar Binks is like this kind of weird lizard creature from The Phantom Menace. And many people were very angry because he sounds a little bit like that stereotypical uh, African-American, you know, runaway slave. You know, Misa, Misa. And, um, you know, there's just, it's just too goofy to be funny. I think a lot of people would like to kill Jar Jar Binks, myself included. Yikes. And if that's the way that lizard goes around speaking, that's pretty offensive. So yeah, let's go with him. <laughs> okay, let's go with him. All right. Is there anyone in the in real life that you'd like to kill with a lightsaber? Oh, God. <laughs> uh, no. Okay, good. I'll stop the recording and then you give me your, your real answer. All right. Jackie Johnson, thank you very, very much. I forgot to say your name sounds like uh, you were like an Olympic sprinter or something. So uh that's a, that's a great name. It's a great name. Well, for, I sprinted uh, out of the cult. If that. If oh, that that's helps. good. Well, there you go. You, you gold medal, gold medal. <laughs> Have a great afternoon. Have a great uh, day, year, and life. And hopefully, we'll connect again. Maybe not in Barcelona, but sometime in the future. Yes. Thank you so much, Michelle. It's been so much fun. Thank you. All my best. And that is the end of part A of episode 3.6. We hope you found it edifying. If you are caught in a manipulative group that places high demands on you and your loved ones, keeps you from communicating with friends and family, controls your allegiance and self-esteem by shaming and gaslighting you, teaches you that you are nothing without them and that their leader is perfect and superhuman, please reach out to someone you trust and report any crimes to your local authorities. If you have no one to talk to, contact us at paranoidplanet.mail at gmail.com and we'll do all we can to find someone who can help you. It may be the most important thing you ever do for yourself and for those who depend on you. You can learn more about ICSA and what they do by going to ixahome.com. And if you'd like to hear about some useful resources, please stay tuned after these credits are over. Join us again for part B of this episode as we engage in a session of talk therapy with former Nexium members Sarah Edmondson and Anthony Ames, who will tell us about the narcissistic self-help guru, now a convicted sex offender, Keith Raniere, and about the hardships, anger, guilt, and joys that came with leaving Nexium, as well as a process of healing that they are still engaged in. Until then... If somebody offers you a tiny tattoo for the price of your eternal silence and loyalty, it's time to pack the car and the kids and get the hell out of town, because you're already living in hell. We'll see you soon. Conspiracies, paradigm shifts, and critical thinking. Hi listeners, this is Michelle. If you really need some information on cults and you don't know where to start, uh, I do recommend going to the ICSA website. Uh, if you can, uh, contact them through email and someone will answer you. Uh, I'm pretty sure. If not, uh, let us know, and I'll contact someone, whether it's Jackie or someone else at ICSA who can talk to you. Also, uh, if you've listened to our previous episodes or 
Actually, if you haven't and you want to go and listen to them, uh, you might find the details for Mike Kropfeld uh, at InfoCult, and they're based here in Montreal, but they do serve people uh, throughout Canada and beyond. Uh, you can contact them, and again, we are quite willing uh, to put in a word for you if you're having trouble um, getting a contact. Uh, there are two books that I discovered while I was at the convention this summer. Uh, one of them is for the average reader who's experienced a, a cultish experience and needs to heal. It is a workbook uh, written by Professor Jilly Jenkinson, uh, who is a, a professional psychologist. Uh, it is called Walking Free from the Trauma of Coercive, Cultic, and Spiritual Abuse, a Workbook for Recovery and Growth. And it is published by Routledge, I believe, which is the same publisher uh, that published my book on Kennedy, uh, completely separately. Uh, this is not uh, necessarily a, a, a plug for them. And here's the blurb from the back of the book. Walking Free from the Trauma of Coercive, Cultic, and Spiritual Abuse, a workbook for recovery and growth, is an interactive self-help workbook and psychological roadmap to enable survivors of coercive, cultic, and spiritual abuse to find healing, recovery, and growth. This book, based on a tested model of post-cult counseling and years of research and clinical experience, is designed to help survivors of diverse abusive settings, including religious and spiritual, political, gangs, business, therapy, and wellness, and one-on-one -on -one relationships. Written in accessible language, this workbook serves as both a self-help book for survivors and former members and a guide for therapists working with them. Uh, I'm sure you can find this either on the Routledge website as well as through Ixa and I'm sure through Amazon and other types of, uh, of services. I, I did leave through this workbook. It seems to be easy to follow. Uh, it's illustrated and you can work through it at your own pace. And it's useful if you find that you don't have the means, the support uh, financially in order to visit with a counselor on a regular basis. Uh, some, some counselors will meet with you uh, for free or at a reduced price. Uh, and I'm sure that the organizations I mentioned uh, might be able to point you in the right direction. Another book I want to promote is the one that I discussed in my interview, uh, my discussion with Paul Jensen. And that is a book by Kenneth J. Garrett, uh, who also left a very high uh, demand church, who remained a Christian and who wrote a book particularly for uh, believers who don't really know where to go. They've experienced abuse, they are still faithful to the Christian religion, uh, but they are not, are not particularly trusting of the institution. It is called In the House of Friends, Understanding and Healing from Spiritual Abuse in Christian Churches. Again, I do believe it's, it's available on most, uh, most book distributors. It is uh, published by Whipf and Stock. That's W-I-P-F and stock, S-T-O-C-K. And here is the blurb at the back of the book. There is a place that promises acceptance, spiritual growth, and friendship, but instead delivers criticism, abuse, and exploitation. A place that declares marriages will be strengthened, treasured, and protected, but instead weakens, diminishes, and marginalizes them. A place that claims to obey the word of God, but in practice, weaponizes the word against those who disagree or doubt. A place where the good news of a tender-hearted, loving Savior is blurred by leaders who are controlling, traumatizing, and self-serving. A place that calls loudly to the storm-tossed at sea, only to lure them to the rocks where they flounder and fall apart. A place that appeared to be a house of friendship, but was a place of betrayal. That place might be a Christian church, it might be a cult, 
It is probably both. In the House of Friends, Understanding and Healing from Spiritual Abuse in the Christian Church is written for survivors of abusive churches, their families and friends, and all who want to understand spiritual abuse and help the abused. Dr. Garrett is a long-term pastor of a diverse urban congregation and combines personal experience, sound academic research, and pastoral theology to address a poorly understood, rarely admitted problem today, spiritual abuse in Christian churches. End quote. I actually sat down for a meal and a beverage with uh, Pastor Kenneth, and, and it was a very, um, very great conversation. Uh, we were joined by a, a retired, a friend who is a retired Dominican monk, uh, and we just had a great time uh, speaking about our lives and our different work, and particularly uh, our, our concerns, how vulnerable people within uh, religious institutions, and particularly churches, uh, can sometimes fall prey to what we think is often something that lies out in the fringe. Uh, it is not. So if you do need help, if you do want support, uh, look to these sources, contact them, contact us, and we'll try to, uh, to help you out as best we can. Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, whatever way you celebrate these holidays, uh, may you be safe, May you be surrounded by loved ones, and may you understand that you are worthy, special, and loved.